0: Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTain. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're turning to one of the most complicated, complex, confounding issues of our time. Not Brexit, but the state of the British economy following last week's autumn statement. And to guide us through is Torsten Bell, Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation and I would say one of the most influential men in Westminster.
2: These are lies.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome Torsten.
3: And we're setting you a question that you're going to help us answer, I hope. Which is, why are UK living standards falling? And how have we got here since the economic optimism
2: of the post-Second World War world? Clearly, trust economics have gone. What is the point of her government? Being physically manhandled. It's a
0: shambles and a disgrace.
2: So today, Mr
0: Speaker, I'm going to cut the main 12% rate of employee national insurance. I'd normally bring in a measure like this from the start of the new tax year in April...
2: But instead, tomorrow, I'm introducing urgent legislation to bring it in from January the 6th.
0: We were told that this was to be an autumn
2: statement for growth, but the economy is now forecast to be £40 billion smaller by 2027 than the Chancellor said back in March.
0: So let's start with the autumn statement. So as far as I could see, Torsten, it was, in effect, £21 billion of tax cuts or rather a kind of tax rebate on tax rises that have already happened that will pay are, are paid for by £19 billion of spending cuts in the future. So a kind of classic pre-election Budget, which presents the Labour Party with all sorts of problems. And lots of people say these spending cuts are almost impossible to ever implement. Do you mean, first of all, do you think that's a fair assessment of the, the autumn statement itself?
2: Yeah, I think that is a fair big picture. I and mean, there's a number of different ways of thinking about what's happened. So, one is, as you say, big spending cuts already in train for after the election made slightly deeper, particularly on the capital spending. Side, which is obviously problematic in a world where we need to be at a higher investment future because we've all signed up to a net zero transition involving quite a lot of investment in the next decade. And that is allowing some spending, some tax cuts to come in the short term. There's another way of thinking about it, which is this autumn statement announced quite large tax cuts. Remember, these are the largest tax cuts since 1988. I do think we're slightly understating the scale both of what got announced. So £20 billion, as I say, largest tax cuts. We don't count list trusts' ones because she had her head chopped off before <laughs> they actually got implemented. But generally, pretty large, chunky set of tax cuts. But despite that, taxes are still going up because the much larger tax rises had already been announced over the last few years. So just think about the personal taxes for a second. We've got roughly £10 billion worth of tax cuts, 2p off national insurance, but we've got £45 billion worth of personal tax rises, pounds worse off because of those policy measures, even though they're better off because of what got announced in the autumn statement. So I think, but I think that discussion was reasonably well rehearsed last week. I think one thing we probably didn't discuss enough is what is overall going on? Like, why have we got taxes, yes, being cut in the autumn statement, but overall being up really significantly? Remember, we're we're like 4% of GDP up in terms of the tax take compared to 2019 by the end of this decade like really large rises even kind of tax and spend keenies like gordon brown never got close to those tax rises so why is a government doing that and the underlying answer leaving aside the individual fiscal event to fiscal event situation is one because interest rates have gone up and that's pushing up the cost of government borrowing really significantly about two percent of gdp then we're talking about the highest interest burden we will have had since the 1980s, and even then it didn't last that long. So if interest rates stay where they are now, we're talking about a sustained level of uh, higher um, debt interest bills. It's also because we're an older and a sicker population and that's costing us quite a lot of money in the social security system. So it's not just about the debt interest, but that's the big thing that is going on. And that is then, even if they don't want to say it like this, are wrestling with how do you pay for a higher debt interest bill? How much of that comes from higher taxes and how much of that comes from other areas of public spending being squeezed. The answer is, of course, both are happening.
0: On the debt, then, this is really hard to get your head around sometimes. You think back to the 2010 election, and in from memory, it was all about the debt and the deficit, and it was all about getting the deficit
2: down. I absolutely guarantee you there's no debt down yeah. going on. There yeah, hasn't been any debt down yeah. going on since the early 2000s, <laughs> and there isn't any debt down going and on in the going, plausible yeah. future.
0: OK, so is, is that the fundam- fundamental thing that's going on here? We've just got too high a debt? Or is it the fact that the interest rates have gone up? And why is the rise in interest rates? Why does that affect the debt so much? Because I always thought it was long term debt, you know, long term interest payments on this
2: debt. So can you give us an idea of what's going on? So two things are going on. In In the olden days, or the 2000s, as we call them, then we had debt levels of, you know, 30 to 40% of GDP and interest rates hovering around 5%, 5 or 6%. I remember, trend interest rates trending down, basically from the 1980s, and in particularly from the aftermath of the early 1990s recession. So your debt is roughly stable at around the, that level and interest rates are coming down. So your debt interest bill is falling. But it was still reasonably high. If you remember back to the 1997 election and the phase before that, you've still got a Labour Party attacking a Conservative Party for the cost of economic failure, high debt interest bills. But they weren't well, high by historical standards, they but um, higher than they said they should be. As part of a wider, you know, you cause some, some busts in the 80s and the 90s. So that phase was around. Then what you have is the debt level shooting up, to about over 80% after the financial crisis. So we're doubling our debt levels. That doesn't cause this kind of big role in politics because the interest rate also goes through the floor. So that goes from five to something that rounds towards zero Mm. over the course of the financial crisis. So even though debt levels have doubled, your debt interest bill is not posing huge constraints. When George Osborne is saying it's really important we get the public finances under control, he's not saying it for the debt interest reasons he's saying it because the economy had got smaller he's also um, saying he's, for sterling
3: reasons he, i think
2: yeah some of that as well the um, but all i was thinking, when the kind of the motivator of like fiscal politics at that point isn't a debt interest bill what's happened since then is two things another set of crises so it turns out a pandemic and an energy shock are really expensive who knew <laughs> helen's written books about that everyone's i'm sure read them so debt gets you up to over 90 percent of gdp the um, But more importantly, so that's like a big but marginal increase on a debt level. Really, what's happened is interest rates have gone back to 5%. And that is what is squeezing the public finances so severely. That is why taxes are rising and spending is in a state. Now, the question then you're asking is, why is it feeding through? Why those interest rates rises feeding through so fast yeah. to the debt interest, which is a really important question. Because if you went back to the kind of complacent 2000s, we literally wrote books about how brilliant Britain was at economic policymaking, which included boasting about the long-termness of our debt. The, that isn't the case. That hasn't turned out to be the case. There's a number of reasons for that. But the big one is that the way in which we have operationalized quantitative easing, which is the Bank of England buying up large amounts of government debt over the course, like really large, much larger than we anticipated at the time at which it was authorised during the financial crisis, um, is that when the bank buys those government guilts from the private sector, it does it by issuing reserves, giving banks Bank of England reserves. And what we are now doing is paying interest rates at the Bank of England's current interest rate to those banks on those reserves. We're paying what's called interest on reserves. That's how we're actually running monetary policy these days. The effect of that is if the Bank of England's interest rate rises, it immediately one-to-one feeds through to the debt interest bill on that proportion of government debt that has been bought by the Bank of England as part of the quantitative easing programme. So we see an immediate feed through to a large amount of our debt stock rather than what used to happen, which is that would only feed through at the point at which we had to roll over those debts. So if the government had sold a 10-year gilt, we wouldn't need to pay the new higher interest rate until that guilt came up for renewal after 10 years. Can can I just ask
0: who we're paying the interest to?
2: Banks. Basically banks. Right.
0: I think what's really
3: interesting about this is, is that the whole context, in a way, of British politics through that time period you're discussing, Torsten, is shaped, isn't it, by really three different monetary environments. The first of them, sometimes called the Great Moderation, is like from the middle of the 90s, let's say, to 2007. I think it's sort of strained before we even get to the... September 2008 crash. And the monetary environment, in a way, is being set internationally by how much American debt China and Japan, but particularly China, is willing to buy. So that drives interest rates down, even at a period when inflation starts to worry the Federal Reserve from 2004. They they start doing some monetary tightening, but not that much in the big scheme of things. Then we have the post-2008 monetary environment, the beginning of which Britain gets some clear benefit from, because you have QE, plus you've still got lots of long-term structured debt. So that means that even when we have a budget deficit of 10%, there's nothing that really looks like a crisis, despite the way that George Osborne wanted to um, frame it. And that gets us through the period of the 2010s, where debt is relatively high, it allows us to do pandemic spending because imagine actually the pandemic had happened in the monetary environment that's existed since late 2021, really with inflation coming and then the interest rate increases in 2022. Imagine trying to do QE pandemic into this context. It would have been much, much harder. It would have presented a much more like difficult um, job. Now we've got QE still effectively or the legacy of QE in place, including the pandemic QE in this new monetary environment, driven, again, not by anything happening in Britain, particularly anyway, but by the energy shock. And so, actually, the idea that they can be like a space for British policymakers to do very much here in what is now, because of the sequencing of the monetary environment, an incredibly difficult environment, is quite difficult to see.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a more difficult time to govern Britain in this world, than people anticipated even during the pandemic I mean we were all looking at as you say e- an easy monetary environment that got even further eased and looking at our debt interest bill and saying even though we're borrowing all this money mm-hmm. for the pandemic it actually looks perfectly like the debt interest levels coming down and that is not the world we find ourselves in I would the only thing I would slightly I think we should distinguish between what happens during crises where I think it's unlikely you get a hard stop where people aren't prepared to borrow to lend to a, a government because in those circumstances, the Bank of England will probably be in a in a position where quantitative easing is going on to an extent that it facilitates that. I think the crises in a higher interest rate world, the difficulty at least, maybe crisis is too strong, comes on the way out of economic crisis. It comes at the point at which the fiscal authority, so we're seeing a small version of this, where the fiscal authority is facing what looks like the new normal interest rates rather than the emergency support from the monetary authorities during an economic crisis with a higher level of uh, debt and with international markets then determining basically your rates. I think that the challenge I think for countries in future and hopefully this won't happen because it would be a very very bad situation indeed to be in but Eve, countries when will you find out that you've run out of fiscal space I suspect you will find out really on the way out of an economic shock rather than on the way <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> into it. Well I hope we're not going to see one for a while. We've had we've had three in 15 years so I not think we're due a phase of uh earth uh, stability. I'd quite like one anyway. But the, um but that is you know that's that's my speculation.
3: But in a way we should go then back to talking about the Liz Truss interlude <laughs> <laughs> because of you know, here's a government that did run out of fiscal Space. I think,
2: but the Liz Trust thing is, I think it's a really, is a special case in so many different mm. ways. From obviously, the obvious one being it's completely batshit. But the reason it's so unusual is because there was zero attempt, even if you'd made the political decision, which is you thought Britain just needed a lower level of taxation. That was the, that's the political and economic objective. There probably were ways of doing that. Without absolutely making Britain the poster child for how hard it is to cope with a higher interest rate world, yeah. the, um, and instead we did everything possible to make absolutely sure um, that it was a disaster. Spending the summer in advance, slagging off the Bank of England's independence and the Office for Budget Responsibility, refusing to publish any forecasts at the same time with any, not, refusing to give any sense of how you are going to cope with a lower tax world. I mean, in some ways, you look, you know, Jeremy Hunt, as I say, has just announced the biggest tax cuts since 1988. The markets are in absolutely not fast at all, even though it's basically implausible that the scale of spending cuts he's penciled in can happen. So the fiscal consequences are still quite significant for after the election. I mean, you know, in some ways, this is a bit What's happened in the short term, not how not the individual measures that Jeremy Hunt has proposed, nor how he's dealt with the whole, if I look at the whole period since he's been chancellor. But ex- just looking at the autumn statement, it is a bit Republican fiscal irresponsible. I'm going to pretend I can cut spending <laughs> to the bone so that I can announce some nice tax cuts.
0: Can I ask a, ba- a basic on this? How, how much are we paying in interest debt then per year? And and how big a problem is that? Or, we, or can we just cope with it if we just take sensible decisions, you know, put up tax or cut spending? Yeah,
2: look, we can, absolutely can. We can absolutely cope with it. We're talking about, you know, the peak, I think, is about four and a half percent of GDP. It will fall back to a bit under four percent over the next few years as the inflation shock dissipates and stops pushing up our index linked debt interest costs. Remember, lots of our debt, us and the Italians are the winners for how much of our debt is index linked, i.e. if there's higher inflation, we end up paying more debt interest. So we don't get to inflate our way out of it in the way that some countries will be doing um, right now. So that's causing the peak right now. In a few years' time, we'll just be left with the higher interest rate part of the debt interest shock, around 4% of GDP. I mean, that is a lot.
3: But that presumes as well, though, what you've just said, Torsten, that there isn't another... Energy shock Well, as we or, discussed that, there needs yeah. to be no more shocks. We need, be,
2: we need to be a post-shock world because it's all got <laughs> a bit much.
3: Yeah. It's because in any context in which the Bank of England has to tighten interest rates, again, the problem intensifies. Yeah. And I think then the issue is probably, I mean, we can come back to this, I think, but is that it looks to be the case, if you look across the world now, that any period of you know, reasonable growth actually leads to inflationary pressure. Uh, at the moment, you, and then, are you
2: going to be a bit pessimistic? I'm going to be. That very sounds pessimistic. a little bit pessimistic. Uh,
3: I'm going to be a bit pessimistic, <laughs> very pessimistic in that sense here. But I think there's something else that's going on that we should talk about, which actually does, in a way, come out in the Liz Truss episodes. It's in a way, at least, I think Kwasi Kartung was trying to do this. I don't think that she was. He wanted to switch the balance in terms of giving creating more fiscal space by actually having higher interest rates, which is kind of like contradictory. Once you realise the effect of that on the fiscal. Um, position, but that's I think partly of like why it was received like, under, by yes, those who I understood it right. so badly. But we saw in that episode that actually there's a problem for financial markets from higher interest rates too. That, that there is the a level asset in prices which need they, to fall. yeah, which they become destabilizing. And there were other things going on in other countries that weren't on the intensity of what happened in Britain, but you could see trouble in some respects, including, like, in the um, in the US. So, in one way, what we've got, I think, is, is like, pressures in relation to the financial markets that say, actually, there's only so much we can cope with where interest rates are concerned. And there's then pressures on the fiscal side, which says there's only so much we can cope with where interest rates are concerned. So, is there a moment coming that then provides, in some sense, a bit of, perhaps, relief against the pessimism I was outlining a few moments ago, which says, actually we've got to get to grips with the political problem of how far we can allow interest rates.
2: There's a lot in that, although it's, a, it's quite complicated. I mean, just, just, I think it's good have to give a better answer to Tom's last question as a way, segue into that. So how big a problem is this? Well... Our debt interest bill is heading towards being our, what well, is our now second largest government department, yeah, well, right? Only the health department yeah. spends more than we spend on debt interest payments. Education, defence, they're tiny compared to the debt interest I, bill.
0: I politically that is going to... Well, it's suboptimal, Tom, isn't it? No, it's, <laughs>
2: it's going to become
0: a big issue. That has to become a big issue in the mind of well, people. That's people the question... will be outraged by that, I think, at some point.
2: Well, they, I mean, if you think back to the 90s, I'm not sure people knew. They were seeing their public service spending squeezed. Hmm. Um, now, the difference then was that we were used to it. So we were used to a higher debt interest bill. So I think it's the change rather than the level that is causing the pain. Right now, the thing that's causing the pain is, it's not the level of debt interest, it's that it's gone from basically zero to quite a lot quite fast. That's pushing up taxes at a time when public services are falling apart and the punters want to know why their taxes are up, but their their public services are struggling. So I think that is politically difficult. Then the question comes... Is there anything you can do about this mm. apart from raise taxes and have more yeah. strained public spending? I think those two things are the main things you're going to do. On the margins, history tells you that in a higher interest rate worlds, governments pay more attention to what determines the levels of that debt interest spending. And that doesn't just come on the fiscal side. It also comes on the how do you actually operationalize your monetary policy? So if you went back to the whole phase after the Second World War, the... Yes, we pay down our debts in lots of ways by being good savings people, but really large amounts of financial repression in a world where obviously capital flows were much more restrictive. So basically saying to people, you're not going to benefit to that level. So when people always talk about the idea that when a government has too much debt, that the real danger is that they actually default. In the real world, what happens is, in most cases in advanced economies, is instead you semi-try and inflate your way out of it, or you try try some elements of financial repression, i.e. you are forcing people to hold government debt but not remunerating them entirely at the market rates the international market rates for that the um, now mm. we obviously we have we now do have mobile capital right so we can't go around just saying to everyone well we're just not going to pay you as much for that debt as that you could get for it elsewhere but there are more subtle ways in which financial repression takes place. So I'll give you two examples. One, it tends to happen, you can do it via regulatory means. So you're basically forcing the way banks and insurance companies work, you're encouraging them to hold large amounts of government debt. So will give you a really concrete example of that. Since the 1990s, we have basically been requiring defined benefit pension schemes to hold mu- much more of their assets in the, for- the very safe form of um, government guilts the, um, over time. They've gone from holding equities to holding guilts. That's massively pushed up demand for those guilts. You can see that with insurance companies as well. So that's one thing. You can like regulate people's requirement they must hold.
3: You're basically saying to people, you must hold national debt. Yes.
2: Yeah. They, um, in the <laughs> olden days, we told them they should do it for patriotism when yeah. there's a war on. When there's not a war on, we don't need to put the adverts in public. We just change the regulated structure. Now, obviously, the Bank of England will say we're taking all of those decisions for other reasons, and I'm sure they are, but the effect of it can often be. If you tell people to become get safer, they will usually go and hold loads more government debt, loads more national debt. The other way, which is into the monetary policy space, is that the interest rate we pay on Bank of England reserves – which currently, as I said, in the world where we've moved to large assets purchases via quantitative easing is a big deal. That interest rate, which is currently the Bank of England's base rate. So when that's gone up to five and a quarter percent, that's the interest we're paying on Bank of England reserves. What you can see around the world is some central banks starting to think, hold on there's big fiscal consequences of that way of running monetary policy. So, and they, so we're doing that for monetary policy reasons. The Bank of England wants to pay that interest on those reserves because it wants to use that to set the interest rates in the economy more broadly. But if you look at what the ECB is doing, for example, they're starting to say, right, well, we don't need to like absolutely maximise the fiscal pain. And they're starting to have tiering. So they're basically paying that interest rate only on a small subset of those assets. I know this is slightly on the techie end of the market, but it's really important. This is just a big deal, which is in in Britain, everyone will say, well, that's that's an independent Bank of England decision about whether we pay interest rates or reserve. That's just how we're operationalising monetary policy. Everything I just said in that sentence is true, but it then needs a comma to say it has really significant public finance implications. It means that the tax rises and the spending cuts are bigger than they might otherwise need to be. As I say, Another way in which governments start to think through otherwise unimaginable things in this world is that they start saying, are we sure we can't run monetary policy in a less expensive way? And the answer is we can.
3: And I think, though, doesn't that go to the heart of the relationship between monetary policy and fiscal policy? Because if we go back to the Great Moderation, this period, like between the middle of the 90s uh, and 2000... and well, 2000, I think it ends in 2005, but we could argue you know, perhaps about... Um, that that's the period in which the Bank of England is made independent when Gordon Brown was Chancellor. And it was considered one of the success stories of New Labour. But it's an incredibly easy period to have an independent central bank because there's not very much inflation. You don't need to have a political debate about the level on which inflation should be because it's not causing very much problems. As you said, Torsten, earlier, it's also a period where the debt as a percentage of GDP is not much more than um, 30%. We haven't got this kind of... Um, of problem like low interest rates. We haven't tested what this approach to macroeconomic decision-making that gives the bank independence about monetary policy in relation to an inflation target set by politicians but actually not really being um, debated. Can we carry on, or are we likely to carry on, with a politics that can't contest the relationship between monetary and fiscal policy when... It's clearly the case that if we just say it's for the bank to decide, the Bank of England, I mean by that, to decide what interest we're paying on reserves, that it has these not just really big fiscal consequences, but really big political consequences yes, yeah, absolutely. For, the, for the parties. In, yeah.
2: in the world is a hour? lot messier than the, than the textbooks like to imply about how much monetary and fiscal policy overlap and how much they matter for domestic politics. I mean, I don't think it, it's not like a definite, this has to end in like a kind of mess. One... The future level of interest rates is just very uncertain right now. You know, if you make me you know, guess, are we nearer the zero of the last 10 years or nearer the 5% of today in three years' time? I, I basically would refuse to answer the question. I think it's very uncertain. Your fiscal policy needs to be taken recognising that either of those worlds could exist and they have very large consequences indeed so you've got to be flexible to either of those worlds existing if you are back in a even moderately lower interest rate world say interest rate drop back to three percent rather than the current five percent that would make a very big difference to the degree of pressure put on this system if on the other hand it turns out that your pessimistic world turns up and we're used to maybe five six seven percent interest rates again levels that were normal over the 20th century then there's a lot of pressure on the system in that world Do I think it's likely that we see the current policy of how we pay interest on reserves continuing into the indefinite future? I'd have thought not. But if you, again, look at what's happening in Europe, look at what's happening in some other countries, the way in which that can get resolved doesn't necessarily require a huge blow up between the monetary and fiscal authorities. You can maintain much of how the current system works, but with people taking some sensible decisions to reduce that tension. So you can either either tension could come to a head. I think more likely is that the tension is managed.
3: But just give an example of what could constitute a short term shock in the geopolitical world in which we're in at the moment. And I'm just this is entirely like hypothetical. Say in the next month, there's a serious shipping incident in the Persian Gulf that leads to a very significant and sharp increase in the price of oil. Which would be very inflationary, as we um, know. Would even at that moment, saying it's for the Bank of England to decide how we're going to respond to well, that On that specific shock.
2: one, I, I think the slight difference between another round of a energy shock. And the one that we had at the big just before the Ukraine war kicked off and then during it is obviously it would be happening at a time when the global economy is already slowing quite significantly. I mean, If you look at any data about the British economy like now, you know that the very tight labour market of that phase is well behind us. So I think, I don't know, and that would obviously be for the Bank of England, but I think the Bank of England would be reluctant to engage in another huge set of interest rate hikes in the context of an energy shock. I think we would be... I mean, one, obviously, that would be a complete mess, Helen, obviously. So for one of many reasons, that needs to not happen. But I think actually monetary authorities wouldn't respond by, oh, my God, we're going to have to whack up rates a lot. They'd be, they would more say, what's just happened is a big supply shock. Everyone needs to get you prepared for basically a recession.
3: But wouldn't the question really in the first instance be, how is the Federal Reserve going to...
2: Yes, yeah, so and that um, is a respond, bit more difficult because, that. U- because if they did... Their economy is stronger. They, yeah. yeah, In the short term, obviously, you can have some divergence between European and American interest rates. And in that world specifically, you've mentioned, I'd hope we would see some divergence given how much stronger the US economy is right now. But just to go back, let's make your hypothetical slightly more general, which is, okay, if the economy in a few years is in like a stable position, but interest rates haven't materially come down from 5%, and then we have another big energy shock at a time when maybe things don't feel like the economy is slowing so much. So does the central bank respond? And the answer is yes, it probably does. And then does that further complicate the fiscal um, environment? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely does. But at I, 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 one level, you know, it's slightly weird because, because, as you say, we were used to either the nice decade before the financial crisis or we were used to ultra low interest rates. So both those things have kind of fooled us into talking as if there is some kind of completely separate, monetary environment and some completely separate fiscal. And that's just like, you know, if you take the long view, that's just not how the world is.
3: No, and you could say that quantitative easing was another version of nice. So nice meaning, this is a speech that Mervyn King gave in like 2005, when he said nice was over, and he meant non-inflationary, continuous economic growth. And actually, that is a sort of description past 2012.
2: Without the continuous expansion bit.
3: Yeah, but it was just like low-level expansion rather than higher level.
2: OK, um, very low.
3: A, 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 a lot lower. So it, the, the, then the way of framing it is for now is that the two nicers are because QE no longer... Definitely in
2: regard yeah. to the interaction between monetary and fiscal policy, that is exactly what is going on. That era either dealt with by having low debt and a growing economy and stable interest rates or by having much higher debt but very low interest rates is over... How long it's over for, we don't know. How acute that stress gets, we don't know. But yeah, it's definitely a different world we're in.
0: And we should turn to, I think, growth in particular, actually, because politically that seems to be the thing that is in agreement by the Labour Party. And you speak to any of any of the Tory side. They're completely obsessed with this notion that we'd all be solved if we could just get growth up. But it sounds like from what Helen was saying, That comes with its own complications as well, inflationary pressures and back to interest rates and all of that. Well, I think we should turn to all of this after the break. I mean, it's just remarkable to me how vulnerable we seem to be. But let's turn to the bigger history of this after the break.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.
0: Welcome back. So in this half, we're going to turn to the longer trends in the British economy. And I think the elephant in the room in the first half was the total lack of growth now in the British economy. And, you know, I think we're talking about 1.5% on average in the long term. And that's on the optimistic side, the Bank of England don't seem to be even at that level. And that, as I understand it, is about half what we used to expect, sort of, Pre 2008. And I think we've had various phases, haven't we, Torsten and Helen, over the years since the Second World War. We've had 30 years since the Second World War where we could expect 3% a year, and that would be seen as uh, average. We had a difficult time in the 70s. And then again, we, we came to expect decent growth in the 80s and 90s. But today, it looks like we're entering a very different world, perhaps even one of just no growth. I mean, is that where we're heading? Are we heading to a kind of post growth world?
2: Torsten? I hope not. Um, Tom, you've made that sound quite depressing. So I think there's a number of things to unpick. So definitely it's very clear since the financial crisis, probably actually slightly before the financial crisis, that some of the growth rates we were used to aren't materialising. If you look at particularly at productivity, some of these you can't see as obviously in the GDP figures because the population's been growing reasonably fast. So overall GDP is held up, but obviously we care about living standards mm. and this GDP per capita and productivity that matters for that in the long run. Sometimes Jeremy Hunt, for example, says... It hasn't been that bad. If you look at since twenty ten, if you look at on, at the GDP measure, but I think we really should be looking at what matters for people's living standards, and that is GDP per capita. One percent a year GDP per capita on average. Yeah, but let's look at productivity. It's 04 percent growth a year, which, in my world, rounds to zero. Now, what matters about that is that is the reason why our wages haven't risen. So if you take British wages today, they're stuck where they were at the time of the financial crisis. Had they carried on growing at the rate we were used to before the financial crisis, the average worker, the average, would be £10,000 a year better off. right? So this is not marginal stuff. These are huge. Once you compound them over those many years, um, if you look at the Office of Budget Responsibilities forecast last week, they're saying wages not back to the level in 2008 until 2028, 2029 – so, I mean, this is staggering, right? I mean, in the Treasury in the 2000s, we would have said that was impossible for that to happen. Obviously, we've said lots of things which turned out not to be right. But that was one of the things. <laughs> on the, that was one of the things. On, we also said we'd abolished boom and bust, which turned out not to be what had happened. So, I think that is staggering. That is about low productivity growth. Now, there's then tends to be two positions. One of them, which maybe is the kind of Liz Truss, we just need to get some growth I've got a magic bullet to make it happen, in her case, tax cuts. On the left, the version of that would be, we can definitely get some growth with some magic bullet and it's called the Green New Deal, right? So those are the two like left and right versions of utopianism, which is that we can get back to 3% if only I was in charge and you let me do this thing. At the other end of the market, you've got a kind of technological pessimism view, which is the rate of which advanced economies can grow has slowed a lot. That's mainly because we just happen to be producing all this useless technology. You know, your iPhone doesn't get you any economic growth. It just absorbs your attention. This is the Robert Gordon broad argument, you know, inventing the toilets and the car was a lot more useful for productivity than fiddling with your iPhone. So that says the advanced economy frontier, how productive the most, the richest economies can be, has slowed significantly or possibly ground to a halt. If you're coming from a climate pessimism perspective – So you can't expect growth at all, whatever you do. Now, my view is somewhere in between, and and I'm focused on the British case, which is I think there's definitely not some magic silver bullet that gets you back to 3% growth in the British case. But we definitely shouldn't accept the case for pessimism about the UK, or, or at least its potential. And that's because the British economy has now fallen so far behind, as I say, growing at 0.4% 0.4% productivity growth since the financial crisis. That's, although everybody slowed down, we've grown at half the rate of the advanced economy average over those 15 years since 2008. So I think the silver lining to having done that badly is that there's now a lot of catch-up potential. You know, You don't need to become as rich as the Americans at the global frontier when it comes to productivity. The, and remember, the average American is now 60% richer than the average Brit, right? It's not 10%, it's 60 And we don't also need to become as equal as the lovely Scandinavians. The, um, we just need to have a more normal level of productivity compared to similar-ish countries to us, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Australia, Canada, and a more normal level of inequality. And those two things together would make a massive difference to normal people's living standards.
3: I would go at it a different way, predictably, given the kind of things that I say what? about energy, and say that there's a story you then can tell about the what's happened to in the post-war world, which is that we are a country like many other Europe, in fact, pretty much all the European, West European countries at the beginning of the post-war world, who had to import oil. We didn't. We still had domestically produced coal, obviously. And we basically had an imperial strategy in the Middle East for dealing with that. And we also had the opportunity, because of that, to buy that oil in sterling. All the other countries outside the United States had to buy it like in dollars. And in a way, that shaped some of the moderate difficulties compared to other economies that we had in the post-Second World War world, where we grew. We could take growth for granted, but we didn't grow as quickly as West, other West European Countries. Some of that was because the level of industrial development we'd had before the Second World War. In the latter part of the 60s, it comes crashing down. We have to leave the Middle East, withdraw from East to Suez. We talked about that before we devalue sterling uh, in late November 1967. That effectively ends our ability to pay for oil in sterling. We have to be like everybody else, West European countries. And in order to do that, you look to West Germany and you say... You're going to be a big foreign energy importer, you need a trade surplus to deal with that. That's West Germany's economic strength. We have a disastrous 70s as we get used to trying to function in that world and not understanding how to do it. We have to go to the IMF in 1976 effectively to get a loan to help us pay, in one sense, for our oil import bill. But then we're rescued because of North Sea oil. So then we have a period in which we're significantly less constrained than we've otherwise been. We still managed to turn to having a trade deficit again by 1985. So sometime... It's quite impressive of us, actually. So It's really... So that's nearly 20... <laughs> took a real effort, but we managed so it. 20 years before we start becoming a net energy importer again, which is like 2004, it's really odd. And since then, if you look at it, a lot of our economic data, turns down from 2005. Like, I don't think that that's... A coincidence, And I think it's partly because politicians, they haven't understood what it means to be an energy importing economy in a dollar world. And we have a significant balance of payments issues as a consequence that we don't address. And it puts these persistent pressures on sterling. So if you look at some of the moments that have been most difficult in the era since, they are bound up with sterling weakness, including the fact that we allowed sterling to depreciate by a third in response to the financial crisis crash. Now that might have had some advantages. And then again after it. Brexit. And again after Brexit. Uh, and then we the sterling weakness was very much central to what happened to um Liz um trust. And that's in a way, I think, also what makes our fiscal situation more difficult than it would otherwise be, because a moment when we have exchange rate vulnerability um as a as a response to that. Unless we can, I think, understand that we actually need to do something to improve our current account position, we're going to find things difficult.
2: Just, I mean, I think it's worth pivoting off that because one thing that everybody in British politics, almost everybody, I think, um, everybody sensible, agrees about is that if you want the British economy to even get to slightly better growth, never mind getting back to the numbers you were talking about earlier in the 20th century you're going to need to become a higher investment nation, higher public investment, higher private investment. The, um, that's definitely right. If you're going to focus on one thing, you know, Jeremy Hunt said that last week. Uh, it's basically the Labour Party's position. They are both right about that. Like if you look over the last four decades, we're by far the lowest, weakest investor of the G7. If you look at the public investment, we invest about hot, uh, 50% less than the average OECD economy. If you look at business investment, which does go f- through the floor, Exactly when Helen's talking about in the mid 2000s. That's not a sustainable picture. Now, lots of people say that. What they don't then say is where do the resources come from to let that investment happen? And at the level of the economy as a whole, so this is not a fiscal point, this is the economy as a whole, those resources either come from borrowing more from abroad or they come from lower domestic consumption at home. I mean, I'm either importing the capital kit that I'm putting in, say the wind turbine or the heat pump, or I'm lowering consumption elsewhere. Another way to think about that is if I need more workers, for example, fitting those heat pumps, they're going to come from somewhere because they're not infinite numbers of workers. They'll come from fewer people working in hospitality, for example, right? That is what economic change doesn't change the overall level of GDP necessarily, but it shifts the balance between consumption and investment domestically. That probably is what we need to be doing, but it's difficult because it really matters whose consumption falls to fund that or... Or you take the view, which is, well, we'll, we'll, just, we'll have an even larger current account deficit than we currently do to let that happen. We won't bother saving more domestically. We'll keep borrowing more from... That is a risky business, is my view. So I think if you do want a higher investment future, I do, not least because I don't see how you get close to the a net zero transition, which is basically a big upfront investment project. You, the, so you're going to need higher investment levels. That is going to mean lower consumption. And so politics then becomes about whose consumption... And if we hadn't been historically living with such a large current account deficit, maybe more of the weight could have been taken by borrowing from abroad. But I don't think Britain is in that position today.
3: No. And if you look at a a country like Denmark, which is one of the, the, the countries that you mentioned earlier, that is significantly has significantly higher living standards um than
2: us but a dangerously flat countryside <laughs> so i always say i'm not just saying this for like swedish prejudice reasons yeah. <laughs> they're dangerously flat countryside you know bad for aspiration Invest- nothing to see nothing to aim for helen no heights to aim yeah. for
3: part of how that they manage though is investment income from abroad in Absolutely, producing yeah. that trade
2: surplus which is of significant advantage to them and remember that's in the long run that's really important to understand in the long run running very large current account deficits for year after year after year is building up li- liabilities abroad, right? The, uh, and so then your GDP at home, a smaller percentage of it, is driving your domestic living standards. It just sounds like we're a bit
0: stuck. It sounds like we're too poor to invest ourselves, so we're reliant on somebody else's money coming into the country, yeah, but this that is, causes problems in itself.
2: Yeah, look, this is like what, this is what we need to relearn, which is like countries do need to think about their overall economic strategy, their big picture economic strategy. So you need to start with that, and you have to do that because you're in a lower growth world and you want out of that insofar as you can. And I think you can to a degree by doing a bit better than you have been doing recently, even if you can't restart global growth, which obviously you can't, but Britain doesn't need to be doing much worse than everybody else. That is going to require moving into to a higher investment world. And that does require tougher choices about how your resources are allocated domestically. It's not about, you know, Stalinist five-year plans, right, and all that. It's about, you know, your tax system massively determines levels of consumption and investment in your economy. So does your planning system. So does the individual decisions government take takes all the time. Levels of public investment are very material to this. So we do have to think about in those terms, and I think that will then take you to a conclusion, which is I want higher investment. I don't want to be borrowing abroad from all of that because it's not sustainable in the longer term, and it's risky if bad stuff happens. And if you've learned anything from the last fifteen years, it's bad that, stuff does happen. Yeah, it turns out, and sometimes really bad, actually. Not even not even just your book standard terrible. That sometimes really bad. And that is going to require us saving more domestically. Now, people tend to think about saving domestically as like actual household savings. I think that probably would be a good idea on the pension side, for example. And I definitely don't want to go through another crisis with British households having so little savings in cash. Like, If you look at what happened during the cost of living crisis or the pandemic, yes, richer households built up more savings in the, in the pandemic, but lots of people went through those with nowhere near enough liquid buffers compared to what we saw in other economies. So like, more savings at the household level, yes. But, you know... The, the, as I say, the state also determines the levels of savings in our economy. You probably do need to be running a tighter fiscal policy. Can I, can I just ask about the
0: comparisons here? Because it, it, you, you say that we're, we're performing much worse than a lot of other countries. But as, when I look at some of the just standard GDP figures, we seem to be matching countries like France or, or even Germany recently. Japan seems to be doing very badly. And we seem to be diverging from the U.S., but in just in terms of economic growth, are we really falling behind that quickly? So
2: that is a um I think that is a good question and this is one where which data you look at makes a big difference. As I say, on if you just look at GDP, you might think things are going okay in Britain compared to some of everyone slowed down, but you know, we've slowed down looks like about the same as some of the countries you've listed, not the US, which have done better. But I think you've got to look at productivity and you've got to look at GDP per capita, where the UK doing worse than most northern western European economies plus Anglo-Saxon economies is more stark and it's even more stark at the level of productivity which in the end is determining what we get paid for each hour we go out to work there's then some different you know some countries have definitely done worse I mean Italy's done even worse than us like they've seen productivity actually fall I mean Italy is the reason why Italy is really important to think about is because Italy shows you that actually there's nothing automatic about getting out of a period of stagnation. You can definitely, particularly if you get into a dangerous loop of bad economics, bad politics back to bad economics, you can definitely. So they if you went back to the 1980s, people were writing what in retrospect are hilarious articles in the US about how the kind of Italian economic miracle. Remember Italy's much richer than the UK in the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. Which everyone's forgotten that Italy was richer. Italy was as rich as Germany as late as the turn of the millennium. Again, everyone's totally forgotten it. because the they- front
0: pages in Italy. I can't remember what they called it, but it was the moment their, their economy Became bigger than the UK's. It was a moment of quite yeah. national pride.
2: Yeah, but and the, everyone is literally saying this new, brilliant Italian capitalism with its small businesses powering this growth, and all the Americans are being like, oh, "Oh no, our big conglomerates can't cope with this competition from these nimble." I mean, again, hilarious in retrospect. But the and then what's happened is slower growth in the nineties, and then basically zero productivity growth, and actually productivity falls in Italy, which is quite impressive given that there's some technological improvement going on. So it definitely Italy shows one you can do worse than us. So we're not the worst. Two, there's nothing automatic about getting yourself out of a hole once you're in it, particularly if it starts to infect your politics in a very significant way. Also as well,
3: though, Italy shows the problems of having large interest payments, debt interest payments, over a sustained Yeah, um, And remember, everyone says about the
2: Italians being profligate and all this. The they're profligacy not. they're talking about is back in the 80s and the 70s. Absolutely. Right? They're it's still a historical... Absolutely, they're
3: still paying for it. They're yeah. paying exactly. For it. They're it's running a... primary budget surpluses, or at least that they have been.
2: Yeah, the Germans just forget that when they're slacking off the sunny Italians. But they, um, <laughs> but yeah, they're not having loads of spending on their public services today. They are paying for high debt levels mm-hmm. from the past. So I think the UK has clearly underperformed in the last... Fifteen years, as I say, Italy's worse, but that we shouldn't be looking at the worst case scenario. I think within the countries you mentioned, I think it is fair to say that the US, generally, and the Germans until the energy shock recently have outperformed everybody. Them um, for different reasons. One because of the Germans, because of uh, their their model. Um, and the Americans, because they've got a lot of energy coming out of the ground, so they look nothing like Europe in that case. But those countries have done particularly strongly. I mean, the German the German growth story again. If you contrast it to the stories in the early two thousands, which were all about Germany's a basket case after reunification, can't sort itself out, high unemployment. You know, that all looks like nonsense if you stop the history before the energy shock.
3: I would say though, you'd have to stop it before two thousand eighteen nineteen. Though, I mean, the German industrial economy. Uh, is effectively in recession in, I can't remember whether it's exactly it just in twenty nineteen or runs over the um year because they experience a China shock. I mean this is where I think that it
2: Yeah, that's true. So Germany's Germany's got the China problem and it's and also got, got the Russia the, problem. Got the Russia. So you don't want but you want you want one of Russia or China, in, in not In that both. sense
3: is, is they have a like I think a strategic economic problem because the way in which they're doing things has run into external big um geopolitical um but, a, but the
2: reason why no one notices that until 2018-19 is that the growth is coming in, like the, yeah. the German growth and the and look at living standards growth in Germany. They're, I actually think the official measures on German living standards and probably inequality are massively underestimating what had happened in Germany. I think the growth is really significant. The US, we can see it. It's really clear. But this is embarrassing. Most people in Britain hate to think this, but France is probably the economy that's most similar to us in terms of actual industrial makeup. And Yes, they haven't. The difference between the UK and France is not as extreme as with some of these other countries. But they've still done better. They've still done they so I don't balanced. think they've
3: done better on, on GDP per capita growth.
2: French, French and British GDP per capita basically hilariously matched each other yeah. over very long periods of time, <laughs> despite how much everyone likes to pretend that these are completely different places with totally different national characters. <laughs> and they, yes, the two, they do map each other well. But well,
0: this kind of points to something deeper, doesn't it? Because you look at France and you look at Britain and we've, we take completely different political decisions. Since the Second World War, we follow completely different paths. And yet we end up, in exactly the same place?
3: I don't think we do. I think that we follow quite similar paths in a number of respects. Not least the fact is we try to deal with our energy problems in the first 30 years, and in France, I would say, carrying on with an imperial strategy. And then, in a way, for a long time, I think it's come to an end that actually the acuteness of West Germany's foreign energy dependency problems actually produced better macroeconomic decision-making than right. was the case in... Well, by in Britain, disciplining them, basically. By disciplining them.
2: Could I, one thing on the... So if you look at GDP per capita, you do come away thinking like, oh, we just look exactly the same as France. Mm. I, I just step back and say, look, just look at productivity. French productivity is basically identical to German productivity levels. So if you do an hour's work in France, the returns in terms of GDP is the same as in Germany, roughly. They, um, they just con- And it's not similar to the US, actually. They're, the US, Germany and France are all way more productive than we are. They, um, the difference is that in the US, obviously people consume, they work even longer than we work. Right in terms of when they retire and how many hours of work they do a week and how, many, how much holiday they have. So their consumption levels in cash terms are much higher than ours. In France, the same productivity, they consume that by just working quite a lot less than we do, particularly in terms of retiring early. So I think if what we care about ultimately, which I'm assuming we all do, is living standards rather than some like abstract measure of economic progress, mm-hmm. the French are doing much better than us. It's just not in the GDP per capita figures because they're basically having a nice jolly once they get to their mid 50s but everyone in france has paid off their mortgages by their mid 50s i know all the kind of gen x's are going to be traumatized by hearing this sorry tommy (laughs) uh um, but like that's what happens they save more they invest more much higher investment levels all of our productivity gap with france is basically explained by higher capital intensity each worker's got more kit to work with like you go around the french supermarket how are the prices set by machines it's all electronic on the Thing, whereas in Britain, someone's walking around sl- sliding in the price things each morning. So the different they are not; they are different economies. Their main difference isn't the economic structure, which it is with Germany and it is with Korea, for example. Their main difference is the capital intensity that is that does translate into higher productivity, higher wages, and earlier retirements. So I don't be fooled by saying, "Oh, look on GDP per Capita, they're just the same." there are differences that are just being used to drive early retirements and working less rather than what the Yanks are doing, which is just buying loads of stuff.
3: This brings up a, a, a question that I think we should turn to, which is demographics, an ageing society. Because when we look back at that post-war era and we say that growth could be politically taken for granted, we're obviously talking about a society, British society, with a very different age profile than the one that now exists. We've obviously talked about some of the structural issues in relation to the whole world economy that inhibit growth for advanced economies. What about this demographic question, Torsten? How important do you think that
2: is? So demographics in the long run is a really big deal. And some of what is going on now in terms of higher, wire taxes higher is to do with demographics slightly more broadly defined. So I think historically we've thought about the demographic challenge as being an older population. And definitely if I look ahead to like 2050... Then yes, a larger a larger state because we're dealing with the health and the living standards concerns of having an older population is kind of basically a guaranteed. Actually, right now what's going on demographically that's doing more of the work in the very short term is that we become sicker population. So we've seen this huge increase in the social security bill is rising much faster in the sickness side than it is on the old age side. Because actually, yes, we've, we've got a lot of the boomers coming into retirement now and into the 2020s. We also actually have a bit of a mini boom coming in in the 20s. We've got like a lot of young workers entering the labour market during the 2020s, unlike some of our other European economies. So we do have a We are ageing, but not ageing quite as fast as some other advanced economies. But yes, that is definitely pushing up our size of the state in the short term. The fact that we've chosen the triple lock as the way of uprating pensions is then turbocharging that a bit. But the main thing that's going on is we're an older population. But on top of that, the bit that we didn't anticipate, but is now pushing up on the size of the state and on the tax take is that the sicker population. So we've got about a 50% increase in the ill health and disability bill for the working age population so obviously we, you're more likely to be on on a, a disability benefit if you're past the state pension age but the we are seeing fast growth in on people of working age um and you know that's what the chancellor's raising as an issue anyone that's sitting in the treasury looking at those numbers going up so fast is thinking that's not very good the um, And that's why you're probably going to want to think about, you know, you can't make us a younger population very easily, although the levels of migration we're seeing at the moment are probably helping a bit on that side of things. But we definitely need to become a healthier population if we don't want to see... If you're you're a kind of arch-libertarian that doesn't want a bigger state, well, there may be some trade-offs here about what you think in terms of what it takes to make us a healthier population.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, this isn't the cheeriest conversation about
2: (laughs) the economy we've had. Well, I was was trying to be perky, which is Britain has got a lot of catch-up potential, right? Just being a normal place that does some decent investment over decades will deliver us higher living standards relative to the countries we've fallen behind. Will it kickstart the global frontier for technology growth? No, because we're too small and we're a very open economy, but we can definitely do a lot better than this. But but I've just
0: noted down some of the things we've talked about. So we're an an ageing society. We're sick. We're indebted. We're now paying higher interest on that debt. We're more vulnerable to energy. We have to import more energy. We're growing slower and we're less productive.
2: I mean, that is a pretty well, we're bad... Less, but we're le- we haven't seen as fast productivity growth. We're not Italy. We haven't got actually less productive. That's like a okay, kind well, of... We're, we're not Argentina the either. No, we're definitely not Argentina because the person... <laughs> no one who stands to possibly win at the next election has ever wielded a chainsaw on camera, knowingly, as far as I'm aware. The, um... mm, don't, yeah, maybe one day that'll, <laughs> that'll happen. Anyway, uh,
0: Torsten, it's been absolutely fantastic having you in. I mean, so many of those things we're, we're going to be turning back to. So I'm sure we'll get you in in the future. Thanks for listening to these times. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts, like and share. And as ever, this podcast was produced by you and Daughtry.
2: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.